Hello, my loves, and welcome to another episode of Evolving ABA. And I'm Dr. Nasia Serencioni Ulazi, and I have another fabulous guest today joining us. I want us all to welcome Dr. Celeste Malone. Dr. Malone is a nationally certified school psychologist. She teaches at Howard University, and currently she is serving as the president of the National Association for School Psychologists. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Celeste Malone. I am so happy. I'm so happy to have you joining us and coming in to share with us today. Can you please supplement however you want to more about who you are and what you're about? Sure. And, and thank you so much for the invitation to be on the podcast, School Psychology and Applied Behavior Analysis. They're so closely related fields. As a matter of fact, my program, I graduated from Temple University. That's where I did my ah. doctoral work in school psychology. And mm -hmm. we do have a behavior analysis program and track in my department. And all of my other doctoral cohort members, I was the only one who did not also pursue the BCBA. Really? Yes. Yeah, so Dr. I Malone is not too late. It's not too late. I think I am good. I, there <laughs> okay. were definitely there were definitely reasons because there certainly wasn't a lack of exposure. Um, but I, yes. I highlight this because I probably had a little bit more exposure or training to BCBA, um, apply behavior analysis formally compared to most school psychologists, considering the integrated nature of my program and the individuals on faculty. Uh, but I know enough to know that that wasn't the track I wanted to go down that, you yes. know, strictly focusing within school psychology. And I also have a background in counseling, but I, but I think about the parallels of school psychology's journey around looking at issues of multiculturalism, diversity, and social justice, as well as the conversations that are occurring within applied behavior analysis. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that is very much the work that I do. So um, a little bit more about me, I've been at Howard. This is this would be my ninth year at Howard, but I'm currently on leave to serve as president of the National Association of School Psychologists. My research focuses on multicultural and social justice issues that are embedded within the training and practice of school psychology. And that is broad, but by design, because when you think about the work that school psychologists do and the communities that we serve, we do need to do that inward look that a lot of school psychology research and I would say the same is true for ABA is yes. very much intervention focused research which is important. We need to know what works and what doesn't work when we are engaging in our practices and our direct services. But we also need to apply that same type of lens to how we operate as a profession. So the area I focus on the most is looking at graduate education and training. How well are we preparing future school psychologists to meet the changing demands of an increasingly more diverse culturally, racially, ethnically, linguistically, ability, uh, increasingly more diverse school age population. It's an important question for us to consider as a field in general, but even more so when we look at the demographics of school psychologists, that it is a field that is overwhelmingly white, uh, predominantly yes. female, 
English monolingual and non-disabled. We are in stark contrast to the communities that we serve. So as a result, culturally responsive practices are always important, but we do need to consider how the homogeneity of school psychology has affected the way that we think uh, through the yes. and what ideas we're not being exposed to. Because again, we are in stark contrast demographically to the school age population of the United States, but we're also markedly less diverse than the general adult population of the U.S. So again, we think about who is in the room, but we also need to think about the views, perspectives of those who are not and why they may not be there. So that's that internal wow. practice look within the profession. And then specifically around my work for graduate education and training, how do we teach about these issues? How do we discuss these issues in graduate programs? How do we help our trainees not only develop knowledge and skills, but the dispositions to be able to engage in culturally responsive and socially just school psychology practices, because it is more than a technical thing about it, yes. uh, but it is, again, that reflection. So, oh, my goodness, cultivated, what, Dr. Malone, <laughs> I, let, let me interject, because there are people who are listening to this and they're going to say, well, Nasia, they've taught Nasia told her to say this. Dr. Malone, I have been for several years now talking about the value of that internal work reflection. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that reflection. And also not just reflection, but bringing that into our training programs and building capacity for our practitioners to look at themselves. And another thing you said, this looking at this, looking at what's happening in our schools, even in our clinics from a systemic lens, not just an individual lens and asking questions. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And, and as you pointed out, you know, the self-reflection piece, that's yes. something that people get hung up on. And reflecting on what I said earlier about those parallels between school psychology and ABA, yes. we do have to think how, from a disciplinary standpoint, what the challenges would be for us when it comes to social justice and engaging in that work. We have the just being out in the world and some of the barriers to that, yes, that we consider the current sociopolitical context. But when we talk about advancing our respective professions when it comes to social justice, we also have to consider the ways that we have been taught within these professions. And what I mean by that is when you are working within a profession or discipline, you're taught to think in a way that is consistent with your discipline and the yes. science of it and the theories behind it. And as you said, the challenges around that self-reflection piece, I could absolutely understand why it's hard for those in ABA for the same reasons that it has been for school psychology. And when I go about my leadership work, as well as my research, teaching, all the things that I do, I make those connections explicit. As school psychologists, our, our growth as a profession within the United States came with compulsory education laws where mm. all of a sudden every student had to be in school and schools did not know what to do with this range of diversity because previously though um, disabled individuals, why bother educating them yes. often in, in mental institutions? 
And now all children are being required to come to school. And so we see this wide range of ability and schools are looking how to tackle it. In comes school psychologists and (sighs) school psychologists using those early um, cognitive assessment instruments, commonly known as IQ tests, Stan for Binet, thinking about those, some of the earliest ones, using those for the purposes of sorting kids to determine well, what type of classroom should they be in? Essentially to address the question, is this child educable or not? And the purpose of that work, it's not, and and again, thinking of how many kids, when you have these compulsory education laws, schools are being inundated with children now and that they need to figure out what classrooms do they go to? What should we be doing with them? And school psychologists using cognitive assessment tools as a quick and efficient way to assess intelligence, however that construct is defined, and essentially sort kids. Not looking at a deeper contextual lens, but taking highly complex individuals and circumstances, kids, a great deal of complexity there, reducing it to its simplest terms for the purposes of categorizing so we know what to do. That has been school psychology's practice since compulsory education, certainly with um, special education law, public law 92142, IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and having these disability categories even more so that further solidified school psychologists' role in this sorting, this labeling, this identification. And so as a result, we are not trained to think about complexity. And when we see Mm. complexity, our instinctive thing is to distill it down and to remove the extraneous noise so that again, we could identify, place a label on it and categorize. So that's the type of thinking that we need to combat within school psychology that's been a barrier to our social justice work because we're very much focused on the technical aspects of the things that we do. The idea that if you have these technical skills, if you know how to administer uh, tests, if you know how to interpret this assessment and then appropriately label a child, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the identity of the child. That's a lot of the thinking was like in school psychology before. And so self-awareness is not something that we're prompted to. What, how it comes in the connection, again, I mentioned the parallels with ABA yes. and why I can certainly understand the challenges as well, um, that for ABA, it's focused on behavior, observable behavior. And yes. so, those pu- so individuals who are purists and they understand that behavior analysis falls along a spectrum and what is how the behavior is defined, what are considered observable offense or mental, all of those pieces. Um, but a very much focus on the observable. Can we define this behavior? And can I define it sufficiently so anyone else could identify the same That's right. behavior. So the strong right. focus on objectivity and how can we clearly define or identify some type of truth. And so distilling yes. background noise, you want to be as objective as possible and identifying these discrete events, what happened before, again, the on the purest end is what happened before is the antecedent observable as well. So not someone's thought or a mental yes. 
but love it on this behavior and similarly the consequence um what happens afterwards again is it observable can we directly tie to the behavior that there's this linearity that you're trying to find right yeah and so if you are very much focused on observable discrete behaviors objectivity the idea of self-reflection that you could interpret or see or view events differently because of who you are is somewhat antithetical to the way that behavior analysts are taught to think. That behavior is supposed to be objective. And so it doesn't matter um, who the person is or who the recipient, the behavior is the behavior. But we know that it's it's more complex than that and that was the, and that is the reason why I did not well, I had issues with behavior analysis I'm like this does not make any sense to me process wow. is important and behavior is more than just what we could put a label on and clearly define there has to be a greater degree of nuance so that that type of thinking wasn't for me but I certainly understand from a disciplinary standpoint why it is so challenging for both school psychologists, psychology and behavior analysis to really embrace social justice. And on the same vein, why counseling and counseling psychology has been further along this journey than we have. And wow. so again, we have to consider our disciplines, they come with a way of thinking when we're in a profession. We are taught to think a certain way. That's part of being a member of it, that, um, that professional socialization piece. And so we can't ignore how we are socialized into the profession when we think about how do we change the profession to embrace culture, diversity, justice, and equity. Dr. Malone, um, I wish people could see me because I'm looking like a bobblehead. Absolutely. You know, one of the things right before I, I hopped on with you, I got a text came through. And it was from uh, a clinical, some, it's some, from some clinical work that I'm doing. And they're looking to me, you know, they said, Nasia, this person is doing X, Y, and Z. What are you going to do to fix it? And there is a tendency to look at me as the person who's going to come in and fix this person, fix this person. So I will, of course, follow up with the team. Because I find that in the language of behavior analysis, one thing that I wish we would change is this term of a behavior support plan. I wish we would relanguage it to be an environmental support plan to get folks to understand that when it comes to behavior change, we everybody has to change. We have to look at ourselves because we are a part of the environment. And it sounds like as you share kind of the ideology that's held in school psychologists, some of that thinking is populated there too. Well, I mean, behavior analysis is an offshoot of psychology. And I'm sure that there is debate among behavior analysis about how the extent to which it's its own profession or embedded in psychology. But I mean, again, the roots of it are very much within um, psychology. There is a whole division within the American Psychological Association devoted to behavior analysis. And so the idea, but of, and this goes to the root of psychology as a discipline that we're both a part of. Yes. The part, psychology is a scientific study of behavior, whether it is um, human behavior or non-human animals. It's looking at behavior, 
And the early measures that came up um, that school psychologists we developed and that when we think about how psychology has branched out and the application of our knowledge about behavior and thinking about intelligence and how do we measure and assess human factors. Yeah, that's where school psychology came in. When we think of how psychology is used to assess performance, a lot of these things to get to some type of truth about behavior, about differences and everything like that, um, because that's how these measures were used to, again, further identify and sort people who's going to be fat and try to predict um, future behavior, who will be more successful in life. This is this athlete is going to be faster and these are things that are associated with better performance, so on and so forth. They were also used to attempt to justify and create race, justify race-based hierarchies um, when we think about the development of norms, everything like that. But I talk about all of these things because again, at the root of psychology, which school psychology and ABA, we are both branches of that tree it's focused on the, the scientific approach yes. to defining it, to understanding it, to predicting it, everything like that. And so when there is a focus on or a desire to find, well, what is fact? What yes. is true? What are the rules, essentially? There's no place for awareness or that type of variability. And so the so again, it's an effort to remove the extraneous noise. Um, uh, how do we account, how can we measure racism or oppression or discrimination? And especially, um, well, so that's part of it. How can we measure these things that are so abstract when it's assumed to be interpersonal without thinking about it as an institutional thing because we can't see it or touch it or measure it, whatever have you. And then why should we care about those things because we don't consider them to exist because of when we think about those early founders of yes. psychology, that white, male, European, yes. so who were committed to the idea of, of developing and using these assessment measures to find and search for these biological differences between races. So no, there isn't a difference between a black student and a white student because of something in their environment or different access to opportunity. The idea about it was very much focused on these individual differences that there is something inherently different about a black child versus a white child, not wow. an environmental thing, because that's what, again, the pursuit of psychology in its earliest days in the U.S. was about. That's uh -huh. absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much. One of our early conversations, when we initially met Dr. Malone, you brought up a term a, psych a psychological term, a term, uh, a branch of psychology that I had never heard of. Liberation psychology. What is, I mean, I did my own research, but could you share a little bit about what liberation psychology is, what role and what role it plays in school psychology? Sure. So I'll start with a very brief definition of liberation psychology and then work backwards. But liberation psychology is the idea um, that it's, it's a way to tackle oppression. And so looking at oppression from a psychological lens, as well as those who are impacted by oppression. 
uh, it, with liberation psychologists view oppression, not just in these interpersonal interactions, but recognizing how it's embedded in society more broadly through the differential access of opportunity and material goods. And then how individuals internalize oppression as well by noticing how they are treated by society and how others, those who are routinely denied access to material goods and opportunities, and their denial is done in this very systematic way and upheld through laws, policy, rules, and so forth, though people we would consider to be marginalized. Yes. Internalize that oppression because, well, we are not getting these things, not having access to these things. So there must be something inherently wrong with me or my group. Then conversely, those who are not being denied access to things. So those who are in positions of privilege or hold social power, who have access to opportunities and material goods, they're also seeing things unfold and internalizing the message that, oh, well, I am inherently better. This is why I'm getting the things I need and access to these opportunities. And there must be something wrong with this other group. So they develop an internalized oppression in a sense, they develop privileged identities and then view those from marginalized groups as less than. So the idea around liberation psychology is to be able to uh, tackle complex social problems such as oppression it's a twofold approach that we first have to liberate our minds. Mm. Um, and what and what is meant by that is we have to recognize how oppression operates within our lives because it operates in everyone's lives, even though even those who hold privileged identities for the reasons I highlighted, because those lessons we internalize from oppression, they tell us who we are, but also who we cannot be. And what I mean by that and how it affects those with privileged identities is taking those who identify as male and the idea that if you are man, you have to be masculine. You cannot pursue if you're interested in dance. Oh, no, yes. you can't do something like that or um, in the arts or whatever have you. But that's oppression that is talking because it limits your possibilities. Um, oh uh, you could have a boy who wants to do, who wants to be a designer, wants to dance and all those things. But oppressive system, sexism in particular, in this case, is defining you are a boy, you are supposed to do X, Y, and Z. These other things are off limits to you. Yes. And conversely, in those who are marginalized with regards to gender, so female individuals, as well as those who are transgender or gender non-conforming, okay, well, you need to fit in this box. And that's what oppression does. And so we have to liberate our minds by unlearning, by recognizing how oppression operates in our in our lives and unlearning the messages that we have internalized, right? Yes, yes. And we have to do this work in order to address oppressive systems, to engage in broader societal change, that we have to work on ourselves um, before we could go working on the world. I love it. So one of the things that I'm learning through your sharing, like I had never really thought about school psychology and that role and the roots of it in categorization. And I'm wondering, based on what you're sharing about liberation psychology, how people are showing up for our children. 
Well, I mean, I think it's, and I wanted to take a step back as well. So after providing that brief definition, because by no, because as I'm talking about this as a school psychologist, this is not something that school psychology has embraced more broadly. I probably exposed over my presidential term a lot of school psychologists to the idea of liberation psychology because I yes. highlighted in my first president's message that's where my presidential theme, radical hope, authentic healing, comes from. Yes. But I think to better understand liberation psychology, we also have to look at some of the other waves of how our colleagues, primarily in counseling and psych counseling and counseling psychology, have evolved on their journey because what we're doing is closely mirroring that work. Wow. So the idea of culture and diversity. It's always been somewhat addressed in psychology, like the idea of human diversity, that it's a thing and that it exists. But the idea of culturally responsive practice, um, some of the first multicultural guidelines in counseling and psychology were in the early 80s. Um, there was a call from racial and ethnic minoritized psychologists for this to be addressed within APA that we do need to have specific guidelines around this. And so out of that, came the multicultural counseling competencies. And the idea of that is you have to understand your own culture because our cultural group membership, it teaches us, we've learned values and yes. it shapes and influences how we view the world. And so we need to understand culture from a broad sense to understand ourselves, but then also to understand the communities that we work, that we're working with. And so the idea of culturally responsive practices, um, but something that was discussed in those early days, so thinking of the work of Daryl Wing Sue, Patricia Arandando, um, those in counseling psychology that have done this work, they also mentioned early on that we have to consider how individuals' culture is embedded within the larger society, right? Mm -hmm. And that talks about systems of oppression. But that's not something that a lot of folks really dove into in looking at multicultural counseling and those competencies. It was more so focused on culture often. And I don't want to say in a surface level, because that's not true when we think about the impact of religion and what you believe, so on and so forth, that it comes from culture. But it but we still need to talk about oppression and recognize that sociocultural identities are embedded within these broader social hierarchies yes. and oppressive hierarchies of power and privilege. And that's where social justice comes in. It's, it's recognizing that our sociocultural identities are embedded within these systems that may grant us privilege and may or may lead to our oppression and marginalization. And the goal of social justice is to recognize these power differentials and to work towards the goal of equity, whether thinking about equitable access um, to opportunity, equitable outcomes, because right now there isn't um, that yes. we achievement gaps, opportunity gaps, so on and so forth. So that was the social justice wave that came in counseling and counseling psychology after multiculturalism. And over the past um, several years, there has been more leaning into in counseling and counseling psychology, the idea of liberation, because equity isn't the goal. We often think that equity is, is the goal, but it's not. The true goal is liberation. And because equity is trying to have similar outcomes in spite of these oppressive circumstances. Let me, let me stop. You're dropping a gem right now. This is 
can you just go back? Everybody, Dr. Malone said equity is not the goal. Did I hear you right? You are correct. Okay. Repeat. (laughs) Equity is not the goal. Um, It's an intermediary step. And so that's one of the things that we have to be cautious about in our journey, um, because we look at, and school psychology is guilty of this, as I'm sure is true for ABA, that we see one win and we think that that's the, like, we made it. And like, no, 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 this is a journey that we're constantly looking for this end point these discrete tasks can we check this off the list but that's not the case recognizing equity is a stop and it represents progress but the true goal is for us to remove and dismantle these oppressive systems to be free and so equity is striving to create more equal access to opportunity but how what would it look like if we dismantled these systems and people are free to be who they fully are and authentically are without these constraints that currently. Oh my God. Let's sit with that for a minute. What would that feel like? I know what that would feel like for me. How would people show up in in the world in their humanness with that amount of liberation and freedom? Yeah. That's a game changer. That from that space, that's where nations are built from there. Takes a lot of energy to hide who you are. It takes a lot of energy to be inauthentic. Liberation is motivating, it's powerful. Wow. And that's what, um, and so I mentioned before that my presidential theme, Radical Hope, Authentic Healing, is rooted in the idea of liberation psychology because um, school psychology has been on this journey you know, first talking about cultural diversity over the past 15 years, more intensely talking about social justice. But in our conversations about it, when you see, when you're focused on the outcomes, school psychology is guilty of this, as well as ABA and a number of other disciplines that are very much outcome focused. And it doesn't matter necessarily how you get to the outcome, but you have this goal that's there. And so if we aren't, so there's a hyper-focus on, Equity, that's the outcome. This is what we need to work towards without considering the process elements. How do we move? How do we do this work? And if we aren't really aware and intentional and thoughtful of that, about making sure that we are elevating the voices of those who are experiencing marginalization, those that we say that we are helping or want to help, how are we centering their voices and decentering ourselves? How are we sharing power? Are, yes. If we're sewing in thinking that, okay, well, we know best and these are the things that we need to do to achieve this particular goal, all we're going to do is recreate oppressive systems. And so an example of this within a school-based setting, um, with within schools, there has been a significant push for positive behavior interventions and supports, PDIS. And people often think about the reward systems. It's based in ABA as well. So um, some of the the contingency management, operationalizing our behavioral expectations and then reinforcing appropriate behavior, often token economy of of some sort. Um, But the idea of PBIS, it was to reduce discipline disparities, right? That if we take a proactive approach, it's based on a public health model. We do, we think about what we give all students and then we increase the level of need or rather services based on students' needs. So it gets more intense. And if we're taking care of everyone's needs, there are going to be some that are non-responders. We give them more 
so on and so forth. So that pub emerging of a public health model and from the use of behavior analysis as well. Yes, yes. But it can, and it can, it does have the potential to reduce disparities. But if you're only focused on these outcomes and you're not intentional about the process of, well, how are we defining behavior? Who are we including when we are making up our school rules? How are we giving students meaningful voice? Are yes. we giving all students meaningful voice or only a select few? What about parents and families? Do yes. we think about behavior in context and, and thinking about um, are we potentially demonizing or villainizing some cultural behaviors and, and not thinking about the context of behaviors and just with a a broad brush painting some things as appropriate or inappropriate, but not considering the it more deeply. It you can recreate an oppressive system in your pursuit of equity if you are not thinking about equity in the process component of it. In and, the process. Yeah. Process matters. And so I would see, and then the other part about it, um, what I would see in social justice, uh, we would ignore the process. We are very much outcome oriented. Tell us what to do. We are very action oriented. Um, school psychologists, we are also very, we, a, a collaborative approaches are certainly needed when you're working in schools. That's true. But there's a difference between being collaborative and being conflict averse. And in the desire of being nice and maintaining that, could be pretty conflict school psychologists and I think a lot of mental health fields as well could be pretty conflict averse to keep the peace and so that we're going on to stat you know maintaining all of these things and not doing the self-reflection so that was one thing I would see just tell us what to do so we could check it off of our list but then the other thing about it when you solely focus on achieving this goal of equity you're seeing marginalized and minoritized communities from this inherently deficit lens because your goal is to help get to these equitable outcomes, the same level of performance or access as the majority group. And so if you're only focused on closing these gaps, then by default, you are internalizing and perpetuating this deficit thinking about marginalized communities. Oh my gosh. Whereas um, when we are truly working from a culturally responsive and liberatory approach, we are recognizing that these communities don't need rescuing, that they have strengths and ways of being that are valid and have helped them survive oppression. And so just by virtue of them being here and in, 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 in these spaces, they're doing something right. And so yes. being able to lean into that, that's not a matter of fixing, but highlighting the strengths, highlighting the stories of resistance as well. Um, and that, no, it's not about rescuing these groups. These groups don't need to be rescued. But what we do need to do is use the power and privilege that we have through our position, our professional positions and roles for one, because people in school psychologists and educators, especially, you know, we don't have any power. You actually do. You may not have as much power as you would like, or it may not be able to exert it in the ways that you would like, but you certainly have more than the students and families that you are serving. Yes. To use your power that you have by your, by virtue of your professional role and 
the power and privilege that you have based on your sociocultural identities. Because remember, school psychologists are a very privileged group. Use all of these power sources to create space for marginalized communities to speak for themselves, to have um, greater ownership and self-determination uh, of their lives, and to take a culturally humble approach so that we are learning from these communities, that we're not rejecting their ways, that we are really being intentional about decentering ourselves and leveling out these power Oh my gosh. Dr. Celeste Malone, you have, <laughs> wow, you have blessed me. I, and this entire, anybody who is in earshot and was able to, is able to hear what you just shared. Dr. Malone, I have a 30 year career and you just dropped some gems. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have, as we end, I have one question that I ask everybody who comes on this podcast. This is Evolving ABA. Evolving ABA, and you definitely dropped some gems. How do you see ABA evolving over the next 10, 15, possibly 20 years? That's such a that's such a great question. Um, I I think across the board that everyone has to fully lean into social justice and the idea of liberation for survive your professional survival and viability. So to remain relevant as a profession, then this is something that ABA has to evolve and learn to embrace. And this is why I say that. And I mentioned earlier that liberation is about understanding the ways that you are oppressed and that all of us are impacted by oppression. In our current sociopolitical environment, where we have these bans on critical race theory, which have extended to curriculum revisions and book bans, we see these policies that are targeting LGBT, LGBTQ individuals. So these policies that are firmly rooted and clearly rooted in racism, sexism, and transphobia are yes. certainly harming individuals who are marginalized in that type of way. But because oppression harms everyone, even though these were targeted towards um, those who are marginalized when it comes to race, gender and gender identity, we're all being harmed because when we are not able to get a full and complete education, can we be productive and um, contributing members of society? When we are communicating who is not welcome in these spaces and saying that, oh, well, these identities don't belong, we're yes. excising folks and we're removing civil rights. And as we chip away at the rights of others, it will eventually trickle down to us. Um, but from a, a more pragmatic perspective, thinking about our respective disciplines, anything mental health related within schools, first yes. off, because and then it'll and because it, it will extend to community-based services. But right now we're seeing it intently within schools, the limiting of school-based mental health social emotional learning supports because yes. it's viewed as the indoctrination of students and ABA which is explicitly <laughs> focused on teaching and yes. shaping behavior 
yeah, falling under that umbrella. And so you can't talk about how ABA is not that and we're not indoctrinating folks and saying that this is unfair without explicitly tackling oppression because yes. it's going to impact your profession and how you're able to practice. We think about who are we bringing into our professions as our country is becoming more diverse. If you are not talking about culture and justice Ooh. and liberation, why would anyone of a marginalized identity want to enter ABA yes. or school psychology if they can't see a place for themselves? Love it. So again, we have to evolve. ABA, school psychology, psychology, psychology in general. We, we, our goal is to change the human condition and to make society better through tackling and helping people through their behavioral problems, right? Yes. If we are seen as irrelevant, if we're not keeping up with the times, can we do that? Yeah, no. absolutely. And so we have to evolve if we want to remain relevant and viable. Love it. Again, I want to thank you, Dr. Celeste Malone. Thank you beyond words. There are likely people who are going to hear you. It may be their first time hearing you. They're going to reach out. Are you able to share an email where people can connect with you? If they sure. want you for a speaking engagement or, you know, whatever, but I'm, it's likely people are going to want to know more about you. Sure. So I will say that I am most responsive on Twitter. So okay. um, my Twitter handle is at cmonique1023. And that is letter C, M-O-N-I-Q-U-E, cmonique1023. And then my email address is celeste, C-E-L-E-S-T-E dot M dot Malone, M-A-L-O-N-E at gmail.com. Fabulous. Dr. Celeste Malone, thank you. Um, I would love for you to come back. This has been powerful. I'd love um, to be back. So awesome. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of Evolving ABA. Again, I'm Dr. Nasia Serencioni Ulazi signing off with Dr. Celeste Milone. We will see, we will uh, speak with you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>